And I want to speak to you for a few minutes tonight on, on these few verses. <clears throat> From John chapter 15, begin reading in verse number 4, reading down to verse 6. John 15, 4 through 6. Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Do you believe that? Without me, you can do nothing. Now, many things have been accomplished in the world without Jesus. But nothing has been accomplished for the kingdom of God without the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, if any man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Let me tell you that there are some good branches that simply were just not abiding in Christ. But they withered away and they died because they were not abiding in him. I want to talk to you for a few minutes tonight on abiding in Christ. From the very beginning of time, there was meant to be only one sovereign will in this universe. And that will was that which existed in the very beginning, and it was the perfect and sovereign will of God. Now, I've got to lay some, some background here, so just fasten your seatbelts and bear with me, and don't dream about Turkey next week yet, okay? It's not there yet. So there was only meant to be one sovereign will, and that will was the perfect will of God. Now, the problem was when other wills were inserted into that plan. And the first will, or rather the second one I was inserted, was the satanic will. That was from Isaiah 14 in verse 12. It says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cast down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For you said in your heart, notice what he says, I will. Everybody say will. I will. My will. Ascend into heaven. There he is. Said it again. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. A third time he says it, I will sit upon the mount of the congregation on the sides of the north. The fourth time, I will ascend into heaven or above the heights of the clouds. And then the fifth, I will be like the most high. So you can see that there was first a sovereign will of God. And then there was this opposing will that, that was inserted into the universe. And that was the will of Satan. Prior to this happening, everything in the universe was aligned with God's perfect will. And along with that came order and no chaos. And there was no disease and there was no fam. Of course, there was no people either. <laughs> there was no people to mess it up. There was only Satan. And next we find Adam and Eve basically did the same thing, Genesis 3 and 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. The first time another will was inserted into the universe resulted in the downfall of Satan. Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, I beheld Satan's lightning fall from heaven. Five times Satan said, I will and God said, no, you won't, and down he went. Lightning, which falls at a speed of 186,000 miles a second, that's how fast Satan fell from heaven when his will opposed the will of God. The second time, an additional will was inserted. 
resulted in the downfall of mankind and everything else that was under man's rule. And so a lot of people will say, well, if God is good, how could there be so much bad stuff in the world today? Well, it's not God's fault. It's ours. It's on us. Because when the world was subjected to his perfect will, none of that happened. There was no disease. There was no famine. There was no death. It was a perfect world and a perfect, perfect in order. Why is there room, only room in this universe for one will? Because everything else makes a very terrible God. You think about that. That's, that's actually a really deep thought. Everything else that we make God in our life makes a really bad God. Because it never fills up the gap. Never does a good job. God had a plan from the very beginning. And you know what? It was a perfect plan. It was a good plan. But insert Satan's five-part plan and then Adam and Eve's plan to disobey God and you've got chaos. That's what you have today in our world. It doesn't matter what political aisle that you fall on. It doesn't matter what nationality you are or what race you are or what color your skin is. There is chaos in our world today. And it's not just in one corner of the world. It is widespread everywhere. And America is no exception. From the days of the Tower of Babel, man has tried to have a world without God and a world without the Holy Ghost. He tried to be guided by his own will and his own intuition. And for thousands of years, in fact, science actually taught that we are the center of the universe, that the world or that the universe and the sun actually revolves around the earth until science proved otherwise. That it's the opposite. But let me tell you this, this basic statement right here. God's will is God's perfect order. Now for sure, Satan also had an order, but his order was disorder. Now think about this. God had an order in creation. He created man first and then the woman. And the, and the man was supposed to be the leader. He was supposed to be the guardian. And the woman came along you know, beside him, and she was, of course, to be submitted, submitted, not subservient to him. I've always wondered what Adam was doing when God said, it's not good that man be by himself. Because that has proven to be true. If, if we went for women, guys, we'd be living in a cave somewhere, poking each other with sticks and trying to figure out how to make fire. Ladies make everything better. It's true. And you know what? Men, men were made from dirt, but women came from the rib of a man. So you could say that, you know, that men are dirt, but women are not. There's, there's that thought. But there was an order that God created. Look at Genesis chapter 4 and verse 3. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the first things of his flock. And of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Now we see two wills at work here. First, there was Cain's will, and he was bringing of the fruit of the ground an offering that he thought was acceptable to God. And then there was Abel following God's order that God had established. In the Garden of Eden, by bringing the best of his flock 
as a sacrifice. Now, you remember whenever Adam and Eve sinned, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together. They made themselves aprons, and so they tried to cover themselves with what they thought was good enough. Okay, but God said, it's not good enough. you got to have a blood covering. So from that point, so there was animal skin, so that was a blood sacrifice. So from that point, there was... There was an order or a teaching that was common among man, and that was that our works is not good enough. What we bring to God is not good enough. It has to be obedience, and we've got to have a blood sacrifice. So when Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground, it was his own works. It was what he had done. It was what he thought should be acceptable with God. Why isn't my religion acceptable? Because my fruit of the ground is a lot better than that old lamb or goat that Abel's offering. But that wasn't the point. The point was what God said to do. And so Cain thought he could do it his way. And Abel said, you can do it your way, but I'm going to do it God's way. So you see how there were two wills that were at work here. And God had respect unto one, and he didn't have respect unto the other. God established an order in the garden showing Adam and Eve is the only acceptable covering. The word covering is atonement, and that was a blood sacrifice. So Cain, you could say, was self-dependent while Abel did it God's way. And Cain ended up in this place called Nod, and Nod in the Hebrew means wondering. He ended up in the land of wondering, and, and what we think it means is he was like a nomad. You know, he wondered, and, and, but nowhere that he went, he was not successful anywhere that he went. No matter what he put his hands to do, it, wasn't, it didn't bear fruit. It wasn't successful. He wasn't able to establish permanent roots anywhere because he wasn't doing things God's way. And there's a lot of people like that in our world today. They're trying to do things their own way and the way they see fit. And they're not successful in just about anything that they do. And, you know, some people are wildly successful in the world, but they're no profit to the kingdom of God. And you know what? One of these days, all of our works is going to be burnt up. And the only thing that will remain is what we did for the kingdom of God. So there are lots of Cain still trying to do things their own way. We see, we see this today in the chaos alive in our world today because whatever falls under God's order is peaceful and good. So whenever we fall under God's perfect order, there's peace, there's tranquility, there, and it doesn't mean that there's no problems, but it means that when there is a problem, it means I know the problem is solver. It means that he can comfort me when I'm, when I'm afflicted. You know, because the answer to, you know, to life whenever we, we are young is we think all my dreams are going to come true. I'm going to tackle the world. Everything's going to be great. And by the time you get to be 30, you start to realize maybe life isn't going to turn out the way I thought it was going to turn out. And then you get to be 40 and you're like, okay, I know it's not going to turn out the way I thought it was going to. And sometimes it's a lot better. Then you thought, but most of the time it's like, well, there's good, there's some bad, and there's a whole lot in between. But I never thought that would happen. Kids die, spouses commit adultery, and they leave, and life happens. People lose their jobs. You know, people have to go on disability. Life happens, so the answer is not if I follow God, everything's going to be great. But the answer is, I don't know what lies around the corner. It might be good, it might be bad, but I know this. Whatever it is, he's going to be there to help me with it. And if it's something painful, he's going to work it out for my good. If it's a Red Sea, he'll part it for me. 
And so, so there's a lot of people that want to live independently apart from God because they want their will and not God's. But Jesus said this, without me, you can do absolutely nothing. Now, without me specifically means without me inside of you. Okay, that is unless you're in me and I am in you. If you have to be in Christ in order to do anything profitable for the kingdom of God. Now, there's a lot of people that have done a lot of things. Okay, uh, but he said you can do nothing that is profitable for the kingdom of God. I can learn to play an instrument and be as best as anyone on the planet. I can master the piano and be as good as anyone in the world. I can learn how to have a magnetic personality and amass to myself millions of followers on social platforms. I could study and go to school and learn to be a great orator so that people would sit on the edge of their seats and be captivated by the words that I say. And the world would write books about me and have documentaries about my life and how influential and impactful I was. But at the end of the day, if, all I, if I did all of that without the power of the Holy Spirit, I've done nothing profitable for the kingdom of God because flesh does not move the kingdom of God. Neither does ability and neither does talent. Jesus proved that when he took that little boy's lunch. What did he have? Just a few loaves and fishes? I mean, he could have done a lot of things. He could have, you know... Coordinated an effort to go into town and buy a lot of food. I mean, this was a guy that could have done anything, but he took the kid with the least amount of ability and he multiplied it. So God doesn't need our ability. He just needs us to be available. And then whatever task is ahead of us, he'll put into us what we need to have for that task. So that's not how the kingdom of God is pushed forward. It's only through the power of the Spirit. Because the kingdom of God, by definition comes by a rebirth. Now, if you think the kingdom of God is something we're going to go to when we die, then that's the kingdom of heaven. Well, with all due respect, you don't have a full understanding of what the kingdom of God really is. You know, Jesus said in John 3 and 5, Verily I say unto you, Nicodemus, except you're born of water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God comes by a spiritual birth, and it is what, we, what happens to us and where we're placed when we're saved and born again. So we enter the kingdom of God that way. Romans 14, 17 says this, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in what? The Holy Ghost. So it can be said that that Holy Ghost experience is the kingdom of God. So whenever I lift my hands and God fills me with the Holy Ghost and I'm speaking in other tongues just like they did in Acts 2, then I am in the kingdom of God right then and right there. Similar to how whenever God created Adam and Eve, now we think of the, of the Garden of Eden as, as you know, surpassing the entirety of the earth, but that's not how it was supposed to be. The Garden of Eden, the Bible says the Lord created heavens and earth and planted a garden. So we don't know how big it was. We don't actually know where it was exactly. But we know that it, was, that it was somewhere on the earth. And there was this garden. That's where Adam and Eve lived. And that was a perfect order. But outside of that, there was disorder and chaos. And so the plan of God was for everywhere man's 
man would go for him to populate the earth and for him to take dominion and reign. And as he took dominion, there would be order out of the chaos. And so this is what happens whenever we're born into the kingdom of God is we get into the kingdom of God. It's like we go back into the Garden of Eden. And like the Bible says in Galatians chapter 5, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, long-suffering, temperance, faith. And then he says this, against such there is no law. Now why did he say that? Because in the Garden of Eden, there was a law against what fruit you could and could not partake of. Don't eat of this tree. You can eat of everything else but of that tree. Don't eat. So there was a law against it. But in the kingdom of God, he said, you can, there's no law because you can have as much love as you want. You can have as much peace as you want. You can have as much joy as you're willing to pray for. It's all available to us. So God puts us back into the garden similar to how Adam and Eve was kicked out. But now we're back into that and we are partaking not of a natural fruit but of spiritual fruits. Are you with me? Okay, so the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but it's righteous speech and join the Holy Ghost. The only way to follow God's order is to follow his plan of redemption. Because whenever we're born naturally, we are born out of God's perfect order. Because we have the nature of Adam who sinned in us, who, who sinned first. So because we're naturally born into the family of Adam... We have to be reborn into the lineage of Christ. And the only way to do that is to be born all over again. And that is through the new birth experience. As long as you're outside of that new birth experience, you are only aligned with your own selfish will. Because the only thing that will ever bring order to your chaos is to get aligned to God's perfect order. There's only one experience that crowns him Lord of your life and removes self from the throne. But the spirit of Cain is still very much alive in our world today, presuming their will is just as good as God's order. And listen to this. In 2019, just two years ago, there was a Gallup survey that identified that 37% of Americans identify as evangelical. Most identify themselves as Christians. But 37% specifically identifies evangelicals. In another recent study in May of, 2000, of May of this year, conducted by one poll of United States residents, 81% say they believe that humankind is inherently good. Three in four believe that they themselves are fundamentally a good person. And when researchers asked respondents how they would compare themselves to others in their lives, 46% went a step further admitting that they're better than everyone else they know. 46%. And throughout the world, most believe themselves to be morally superior to everyone else. If you don't believe that, just you know, get the Republicans on one side and the Democrats on the other. And pass around the mic and talk about who's morally superior. Everybody has an argument. And here's... here's why is this a problem? And here's, here's, here's the issue with everybody thinking that they're good. Good is the enemy of God. And I can prove this scripturally. Good is the enemy of God. Look at Matthew chapter 21 and verse 28. But what think ye? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. 
He answered and said, I will not, but afterwards he repented and went, and he came again to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not, whither of them twain did the will of his father. And they say unto him, the first, Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you that, there were, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. Those are harsh words. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were good in their own eyes. While the prostitutes and the cheating tax collectors were convinced of their own sinful nature. And by default, that made the prostitutes and the worst of the worst sinners in Jesus' day closer to the kingdom of God because they were at least poor in spirit and not justified in their own eyes. Remember the parable that Jesus told of the two men who went into the temple to pray? You remember that story? And one lifted up his hands and his eyes to heaven and said, Lord, I fast, what, two or three times a week? I give of all that I possess. I dress right. I obey all the teachings of the law. I'm a good person. And, 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 and the next one was a publican, a man that was hated in Jesus' day, who went in and smote his breast, wouldn't even look up to heaven and said, God, I'm not worthy. Be helpful. Help me, a sinner. Which one went out justified? So good is the enemy of God. So who entered the kingdom first? Who was the first to repent when given the chance? So good entered last while sinful entered first. Jesus said the first would be last and the last would be first. The first ones who think they are in line because they're closer to the kingdom than everybody else are the last ones in line because they don't even know the, the, the nature of their own sinful heart. And this is the problem in America and many evangelical churches, even too many consider themselves good and self-dependent. Furthermore, there's this from Romans 3 and 12. They're all going out of the way. They're together becoming profitable. There is, he's quoting from Psalms here, by the way. There is none that does good. No, not one. How many does good according to this verse? According to your Bible, nobody is good. I don't care how much they've given. I don't care how charitable they are. I don't care how nice of a personality they have. By God's standards, nobody is good. The law condemns all of us. Now, if you don't believe that, just look at the Ten Commandments. You know, thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus, you may not have done that, but Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you look, you've already committed in your heart. Thou shalt not murder. You may say, well, I haven't murdered anybody, but Jesus said if you've hated your brother, you've already murdered in your heart. You can go through all the Ten Commandments and cross-reference them with the exception of, uh, of the Sabbath commandment and cross-reference them with what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And, and Jesus took those commandments and he said, the law says this, but I say unto you this. He was after their heart all along and what Jesus was doing was not just teaching, but he was convincing man that he needs a Savior. What's the point in dying on the cross if nobody even believes that they're a sinner? It's pointless. So John came on the scene and he said, every mountain is going to be made low and every valley is going to be lifted up. That means I'm going to even the playing field. Everybody is guilty before God. I don't care how good you think you are. I don't care how good of a person you are. You need the new birth experience like me. Furthermore, from Romans 7 and 18, 
Paul said, For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present within me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Paul said this, the problem is not that I don't want to do good, because we all do. The problem is we don't know how to do good. So there is a problem. It's kind of like a boat without a motor. You can only row so far, but when the current starts pushing against you, you're going to go in, in reverse. I don't care how strong you are. Especially if you're in that boat all by yourself. So that's what it's like when you're trying to live a Christian life and you haven't really been born again of the Spirit. Is You've got this boat and you've got this oar and you're trying to row really hard but the current's pushing against you and it keeps pushing you back onto the shore and you say, why can't I do it? Welcome to the problem that Paul just said. The problem is not I don't want to do good. The problem is I can't do good. Because we have no power to overcome our sinful nature. Somebody said, well, do you really have to have the Holy Ghost to go to heaven, sweetie? You need the Holy Ghost to go to Walmart. You need the Holy Ghost to get in your car and drive down the road. I mean, practically and theoretically, yes, you need the Holy Ghost. You're not going, you're not going anywhere without that empowerment. And so, good is the enemy of God. We can find the story of the rich young ruler, the rich young man came to Jesus and said, Master, what must I do that I may inherit eternal life? He came with the right question, but the wrong attitude. What must I do? This was the same what must I do as they asked in Acts chapter 2, when they said, what shall we do? The difference was, the rich young ruler came ready to hear Jesus talk about all the good works that he, that he did. And Jesus, in fact, did say that. You know where he went? To the law. Straight to the Ten Commandments. Jesus said, you know the Ten Commandments. And he named like four or five of them. Don't commit adultery. You know, love God with all your heart. You know, um, don't, don't do this. He named like four or five of them. Now that should have convinced the rich young ruler, oh man, I need a Savior. I need Jesus. I need, I need something. I need something in my life. And when the, But what did the rich young ruler say? All these have I kept up from my youth. Now let's backtrack a second. Do you remember what the rich young ruler called Jesus when he came to him? Two words. Good master. Good master. You remember what Jesus said? Call no man good, for there's none good but God. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons point to this and say, Aha, see, Jesus was not God because he's saying he's not good. It's not what Jesus was saying. He was teaching what I'm teaching you tonight, that nobody's good. There is none that does good. That's why right immediately Jesus read his heart, looked right into his heart, and read the kind of attitude that he was coming to, the, coming to Jesus with. He wanted to be patted on the back. He, 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 wanted to be, you know, he wanted to be talked about. Look at all the good things that you've done, man. You're a good person. Why don't you come on and be one of my disciples? You know what? Jesus did a need disciples like that. That's why he could call Matthew, who was a publican. That's why he could call Peter a foul-mouthed fisherman to be a disciple because at least they knew. You know, whenever Peter saw Jesus and he saw that miracle that he performed, Peter fell down and said, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus said, that's the kind of attitude I'm looking for. That's the kind of man I'm looking for because that's the kind of attitude I can save. 
But there's a whole lot of publicans and a whole lot of Sadducees and a whole lot of people that are filled up with their own religion and with their own ideas of what it takes to be a Christian that are never going to be born into the kingdom of God. Because it's the attitude of the rich young ruler. What must I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus said, wait a second, don't call anybody good. Because there's nobody good but God. He was saying in a very polite way, you are not good. <laughs> but the rich young ruler didn't get it through his thick skull. I've kept all of these from my youth. And so what did Jesus say? Go sell everything you have. Give it all to the poor. Let's see if you're really poor in spirit. Because the problem with the rich young ruler was... His identity and his righteousness was directly connected to his possessions. God has blessed me. I've done so many things, and, and God has blessed me, and I make so much money, and I've got my life together. And Jesus said, I want you to go get rid of it all. Sell it all. He never told that to any of his 12 disciples. Of course, they probably didn't have much to sell anyway. But that was the whole problem with the rich young ruler. And you know what? That's the problem with America today. The hardest place to preach in America is in richer communities where the need for God is felt less. Again, generally, not, not in every home and, per, and person, obviously, but, but generally speaking, the need for God is felt less. And so capitalism produces, and again, I'm not preaching against capitalism. I'm just saying, you know, it's cause and effect. Capitalism naturally produces a people who are wealthy in, you know, in the flesh, but poor in the things that matter the most. Poor in, in their uh, identity of their need for God. Because God has not called us to goodness. He's called us to holiness. And here's, 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 here's another shocker for you. Goodness is different depending on who you talk to. I mean, I, I, I can go out and, you know, I can, I can stand three feet from, from, from a basketball goal and I can probably make it in that basketball hoop. That's good by my standards. But if I'm trying out for the L.A. Lakers, that might be good for their standards too. I don't know. <laughs> I'm teasing. If I'm trying out for the NBA, they're going to say, that's not good enough. Everybody's good by their own standards. You can talk, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about guitar because that's what I know. You can say, well, that person is really good on the guitar. And then you compare them to somebody else that's been playing for a lot longer. No, they're not that good. There's somebody better. So good is, has shades of it. And so, so that's why we say God hasn't called us to being good. He's called us to being holy. And there's only one way to be holy, and it's not get a religion and get, get that, but it's get the Holy Ghost. Because that's what makes you holy. Get down in the waters of baptism and take on his name. Because that's where you get what he got, what he did. So it shouldn't shock any of us to know that God doesn't consider any of us good outside of Christ. First Chronicles chapter four, verse sorry, chapter eleven, verse four. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jabus. Everybody say Jabus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. And the inhabitants of Jabus said to David, "Thou shalt not come hither." Nevertheless, David took the castle of Zion, which is the city of David. Well, this is Jerusalem. So before Jerusalem was inhabited by David, 
it was inhabited by the Jebusites. Now, uh, the Jebusites were descendants of Jabus. Jabus was the son of Canaan, who was the grandson of Noah, who was the son of Ham. So you got Noah, Ham, Canaan, and Jabus in, in that order. Ham was the guy, the, the, again, the son of Noah, who went in and saw Noah's nakedness. And you remember what Noah did to him? He cursed, not him, but his son Canaan. Okay? So Canaan's descendants, the Jebusites, descended from Canaan, who was cursed, inhabited Jerusalem before David took it. So you got to understand, you know, that the nature of the city of Jerusalem before David took it over, it was a very downtrodden city. As a matter of fact, the name Jabus itself means downtrodden. But David renamed it in Jerusalem. Do you know what Jerusalem means? Jeru, Shalom, or Salem, the city of peace, when King David took it over. It went from being downtrodden to the city of peace when the king moved in. Are you seeing where this is headed? Your life is downtrodden when you are subjected to your own will because you were under a curse just like Canaan was, just like, uh, just like Jabez was. But there is an experience that breaks the curse, that breaks the yoke of bondage, that breaks every yoke, that breaks every addiction. And it's the power of the new birth experience. Amen. From 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm trying to hurry because I've got seven minutes left. Somebody say, help him, Lord. <laughs> Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. Now, let me stop right here. The Thessalonians wrote Paul, and they said, there are those that are telling us that the coming of the Lord is, at, is right at hand. Is that true? So Paul is writing to this, writing this with that in mind. Okay, that you be not soon shaken in mind or troubled in spirit or, or troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us as though the day of Christ is the end. So he's saying, I didn't write that. Let no man deceive you for that. Lost my place. <laughs> Verse three. Let no man deceive you by any means for that day should not come except. Now watch very carefully what he says. Except there come a falling away first and the man of sin be revealed the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worse, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, this is the event Paul points to as proof that Jesus hasn't came back yet, and that is coming, again, at the exact writing of the book of 2 Thessalonians, which was somewhere around 60-ish you know, A.D., give or take five or ten years. You know, he was saying the coming of the Christ, coming of the Lord is not soon at hand, Yet, because these things have to happen first, okay? Jesus hasn't came back yet because the one called the man of sin, now we know that is the Antichrist, will sit in the temple and proclaim himself as God and demand to be worshipped, okay? Now, it says that this is literally going to happen. Paul, you know, this is in another place. It's called the abomination of desolation in Matthew 13, 
and, or, sorry, Mark 13 and Matthew 24, Luke 22 and 23, you know, Jesus called it the abomination that makes things desolate. You know, or the, or the abomination of desolation. He's going back to the book of Daniel, and he's talking about that prophecy, but he's, he's exposing it. He's bringing it to light. This is what's going to happen before you see the coming of the Lord. Again, this is my understanding of this. It says that he opposes and exalts himself above God. Now, do you remember somebody else said, I will sit upon the mouth of the congregation on the sides of the north. I will be like the Most High. Who was that? Satan. And so the Antichrist comes with the same satanic ambition that Satan had in the beginning. Okay? He sits in the temple in the very holy place after they've built this temple. And he says, I am God because that's where the presence, the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. And so uh, apparently if my understanding of scripture is right, if not, pray for me and I'll pray for you. Uh, but this is my understanding is that the Antichrist will come and sit in that holy place after the temple is and said, yo, I'm God, worship me. And there's going to be a lot of people that will worship him. You know, he said, well, how could that happen? Well, they're already <laughs> worshiping Satan right now in, in, in so many words. There's a lot of people that think Satan's their buddy, like he's, he, he's the good guy. And, and they're all twisted in their mind. But look at verse 5. Remember not that when I was with you, I told you these things. And now you know what was told this, and he might be revealed in his time. Now watch what he says. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now let it to let until he be taken out of the way. Now, I'm not here to talk about the latter part of verse 7, but the first part is what I'm going to focus on. The mystery of iniquity. The New Living Translation calls this word iniquity lawlessness. Okay? So, it means that the lawlessness that the Antichrist will bring was beginning to be at work in Paul's day. Now, remember what I said in the very beginning, that when God created the world, he created also order. As a matter of fact, the very first thing he did after he finished creation was give dominion to man. That established an order in the earth. I rule in heaven, you're going to rule on earth. Satan came, he, he overtoppled everything because what was Satan's goal? To be God, to sit upon the, the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. That's the church, by the way. Satan wanted to be worshipped as God, and so he said, well, I can't rule in heaven, so I'm going to rule on earth. So he came and he took over man, and you know what? He's the prince of the power. The Bible calls him the God of this world. In a sense, Satan has achieved his goal, or at least in, in part, because he is the God of this world. And so, whenever Satan comes and that order was overtoppled, the Bible calls it lawlessness. Paul called it, in the, again, from the King James Bible, it's not as clear, but the King James says the mystery of iniquity. So, the mystery of iniquity is this lawless spirit that goes directly against God's perfect order. We are seeing that spirit rise up like never before in our day. If you don't believe it, just look around and read the news. Men do not want to be ruled by anyone else, not each other, not by a governmental authority, and especially not by God. We see this in many movements like defund the police. Again, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to wax political, but, you know, we see rioters, you know, burning things down and, and, and just going absolute crazy. That is the spirit of lawlessness, and that is an anti-Christ spirit. Now, that's on an extreme level, but remember that as good comes on certain levels and shades, so does evil. 
There's extreme evil, and then there's just a little bit of evil. But a little bit of evil is still evil. Amen. So the mixture of iniquity is man becoming his own God. This is what the Antichrist is accomplishing. I'm going to sit upon the throne. I am going to be God. Remember the lie that Satan gave Eve in the very beginning. What did she tell him? Her. What did he tell her? You're going to be as what? God's. You're going to be like God's. Remember what Satan wanted. I want to be like God. Satan is inserting his satanic ambition into her heart. You're going to be just like God. You're going to be like God. You're going to be your own God. This was the ambition that Satan had from the very beginning of time. His plan of deception has not changed. It's still the same. It's lawlessness because it goes against God's perfect order. But there is an opposing mystery. Now, Paul called this the mystery of iniquity. There's an opposing mystery. 1 Timothy 3 and 16, and it says this. I'm almost done. And without controversy, I love this. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on this world, and received up into glory. So godliness was a mystery, Paul said. How do we live godly? That's why he called it the mystery of godliness. It's a mystery. We don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do it. How do we live like God? Remember, godliness doesn't mean live a pretty good life. It means God-likeness. How can I live like God? Now, if you're trying to live like God without the power of the Holy Ghost, guess what? You are failing and you are more in line with the mystery of iniquity that tries to do things its own way and tries to live good by its own definition of what good is than doing it through the power of the new birth experience. That's why you need the Holy Ghost in your life. So Paul called it a mystery. How can we live godly in the fallen world, in the fallen flesh? It's a mystery until God did it for us in the flesh. He fought the battle. We fought, but won. And he desires to give us power to live right in a fallen world. And this is in direct opposition to the mystery of iniquity, which assumes man as the center of it all. The mystery of godliness puts the power of God in us so we can live holy in a fallen world. Now, there are... Many religions, millions in fact, religions in the world, and nearly every single one of them have this in common, the teaching that man is inherently good. And many of them, especially Eastern religions, believe in reincarnation and how you may not be good now, but you're going to become good. You shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. It's the same mystery, but the gospel directly opposes that because the gospel comes in and shatters all that worldly wisdom and says, you know what? There is a fallen world, and there is sin in our world, and there is addiction, and there is only one thing that sets you free from all of that junk and nonsense, and that is the power of repentance and the power of baptism in Jesus' name and the power of the Holy Ghost. And when you align yourself with that, there's a lot of so-called evangelical churches today that are preaching a, you know, kind of like a good little message, and they'll tell you that you're saved, but I'm telling you, unless you're born of the water and the Spirit, you cannot be in line with God's perfect order. You've got to be born again, just like Jesus said. Amen. So, the new birth gives you power to live right, a, a good life. 
If you're attempting to live fully without the Holy Ghost, you're failing because you cannot do it alone. Do I need the Holy Ghost? As I said, you can't have the Holy Ghost and not go to Walmart or cross the street. You need the Holy Ghost everywhere you work, especially in today's world. Let's stand. Musicians, come. It's the same for those who are already born again as well. We need a daily renewal of that empowerment in our life. The only way to abide in Christ is to get in him and stay in him. That's why Jesus said, you know, if my words abide in you, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you will and it shall be done. The reason why many prayers are not answered is because people are not consistently abiding in Christ. Get in him and stay in him. Get in Christ because you know what? Here's the thing. Eventually, everything that is not in Christ will be blown away with the wind. And the wind has started to blow. In our world today, we are going to see greater winds than we have ever seen before. We are, and I'm not prophesying anything. I'm just looking out in the landscape and seeing what's going to happen. And you know what? The answer to our country and our problem is not in the next president, whoever he or she may be. The answer is not in changing our country's leadership. And I, I think you ought to get out and vote and do everything that you can to do all that stuff. But that, that alone is the answer. What did God tell his people? If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. The answer is not in the world because judgment does not begin in the world. It begins in the house of God. And we got to judge ourselves lest we be judged by God. That's what Paul told the Corinthians. He said, you know what? You ought to judge yourself because then God won't have to. Judging ourselves means, woe is me. I need God. I need mercy. I need help. Lord, I need to get back in your spirit. Lord, I've let my prayer life waver away. I need to get back and get serious with God. I've strayed away in my, in my devotion to the word of God. I need to get my mind back into God's word. That's what it means to get holy and to abide in Christ, to do the things that we ought to be doing. Amen. Now, I'm not chiding anybody. I'm just trying to help you and trying to teach because there is a mystery of iniquity, and it is at work even among the church. And the mystery of iniquity says this, basically. I got the Holy Ghost 20 years ago. I don't have to pray anymore. I can just sit and, and you know, and do whatever I want. You know what? You're, you know what you're saying? You're saying, I can live holy without a daily empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And I'm here to tell you, you cannot do it. And you are not doing it. Now, you might be good in your attendance. You might be coming to church. You might be giving. You may have given a lot for the building fund. All those things are good. But good works do not inherit the kingdom of God. We ought to get filled up first until, just until we are overflowing with God and then go out into the world and be led by the Spirit. The only way to abide in Christ is to get in Him and stay in Christ. Let's lift our hands right now to the Lord. Hallelujah, Jesus. Lord, we lift your name right now today. I want to just open up.